We turn in God's Word again to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1. Mark does indeed pack in a great deal into this first chapter, although he does not deal with many things in great detail. Um, Oftentimes, Mark just gets us little snippets of that which had happened, and we find in the other Gospels perhaps sometimes a fuller explanation of the events. This morning we do have one where Mark pauses to give us a little bit more information about what is happening. So we'll take some time dealing with that this morning. We're in Mark chapter 1. Tonight we continue our tulip series, not the traditional one of, uh, that we've come to know and understand in uh, Reformed doctrine, but in Reformed truth. Uh, This evening we deal with the subject of unconditional kindness, the unconditional kindness. But this morning we're back dealing with some firsts that Mark tells us about. Mark 1, beginning at verse 14, and we'll be reading through verse 28. Let us hear then the very word of God. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the net. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. The unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. That once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the, the word that you have given to us the Holy Bible, we ask that you'll be with Pastor Bob as he explains this portion of Scripture for us. ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to look at three first as Mark presents them. That doesn't necessarily mean they were 
the first events that took place, uh, particularly when we come to the third as far as miracles are concerned. But as far as the Gospel of Mark is concerned, these are what he is reporting as the first. So we have here in our passage the first sermon. We have secondly the first disciples. And then thirdly, we have the first healing. Now, it's been about a year. It's been about a year since those temptations took place. Now, we glean that as we look at various uh, uh, events that take place in the other Gospels. And given the fact that we read the word immediately several times in this passage, if this passage, if when it says in verse 14, Jesus begins his sermon... If that had been immediately after the temptations, I don't think Mark would have paused to throw in another immediately. Instead, what we have at the beginning is now after John was arrested, indicating that some period of time has taken place. And as I said, when you put the various other Gospels together, it appears that that is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a year, because it indicates that another Passover has taken place, which would take another year on the Jewish calendar. So quite some time has taken place before Mark begins once again through the Spirit to remind us and to teach us and to convey to us these firsts. Now, the central theme of each one of these is authority. We are seeing the authority of Jesus on display. Remember, there's an overall theme that is going on in the book of Mark. And that's to show us that Jesus, who is indeed the Son of God, is the one who is the suffering servant. He has come. To give his life as a ransom for many. But in the beginning of the gospel, Mark wants us to see that Jesus truly is the Son of God. To see his authority. We see it in this first sermon. We see it in these first disciples who are called. And we see it even clearly, perhaps even more clearly, in this first healing. So let's look first of all then at this first sermon. First of all, let me give you a definition because it comes to us out of the text. Verse 14 tells us, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. That's what a sermon is. A sermon is proclamation. Another word for the word proclamation is heralding. That's why if you noticed when I read the actual words of Jesus that are recorded here, my voice ramped up a bit. Why? Because no herald speaks softly. The job of the herald is to call out, is to shout out, is to proclaim. We think of that when we think of the hymn we sing at Christmas time, that of the angels, hark, the herald angels sing. That hark is a 
proclamation. It is a large, loud shout that goes out into the quietness of those fields of Bethlehem. Oh, I know, we might think this is somewhat out of character. Doesn't Jesus always speak tenderly and mildly and quietly? No. In this passage, with the authority of Jesus on display, there is power that comes through the heralding, through the proclamation of the gospel. And pretty soon we'll get to the point. See, this is what they were not used to. This is not what normally happened. This is not what took place. But Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming. See, the job of the herald is the one to shout out the fact that the king is coming. That's sort of the position. Or to shout out the news of the king. So imagine somebody coming into the village and saying... Caesar wants you to all come to a festival. What? What did you say? We need a herald who can tell us what's going on. Because that was the job. You had to shout out, Caesar's coming and he wants you to assemble. So that no one is left without excuse. This is how Jesus comes. This is what a sermon is to be. The proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of good news. And there is an urgency to this. Now. This is now. This is to happen now. There is to be a a passion with a desire of knowing this is the word that needs to go out now. This is how Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming. Oh, there'll be times of teaching. There'll be times to sit down with his disciples and to teach. But here, we're told, he comes proclaiming the good news. Well, what is that message? What is this good news? What is this gospel, as our ESV translates it? Well, verse 15 tells us what the gospel is. Here it is. The good news is this. I've come. I have come. The time is fulfilled. What time? The time of the Messiah. The time of the Savior. That time is now. That time is here. God has sent forth his son to save mankind. This is the good news. Proclaim it. Herald it. Good news. The Savior has come. So repent. Verse 15. Repent. Believe. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in the one that God has sent. Turn from your own means of salvation. Turn from your own works. Turn from your paganism. Turn from your godlessness. Turn from your sin. Turn and look to Christ. Christ for your salvation. Christ for your motivation. Christ for your life. 
Christ for your victory. Christ for your holiness. Christ for your righteousness. Look to him. And then live in the kingdom. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean, that kingdom of God? Well, it's not a, a piece of land. It's not an area. It's not a territory. Perhaps this definition that I, I came across is perhaps one of the better definitions that I have ever found of the kingdom. It is God's reign over his people through their complete salvation in their hearts, evidenced by their lives. That is the kingdom of God. The reign of God over hearts that have been saved. Hearts that now have a desire to live in obedience to the one who is their king. That is the kingdom. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God is here in this place. The kingdom of God is at the next church. The kingdom of God is in the next state. The kingdom of God is in the next country. The kingdom of God is in the next continent. Because the kingdom of God is wherever God rules the hearts of his people. Those who have come to know salvation. A complete salvation in Jesus Christ. And are seeking to live in obedience to him. Here is the first sermon. The time is fulfilled. The good news is the Savior has come. The kingdom, God's rule in men's hearts, is being established. Therefore, repent and believe. Secondly, we have here the first disciples passing along the Sea of Galilee. He sees these men who are fishing. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. He calls them. Notice he isn't passing by and they go, hey, there's Jesus. Let's us become his disciples. Let's us, let, let us make the decision. We have a will. We'll just follow him. What makes this even more interesting is that these men too knew Jesus prior to this event. This is not the first time they've met. Jesus met these folks about a year before as well. There are interactions that Jesus has. But they went back to fishing. Now Jesus has come to Galilee. Still, there he is, walking by their boat. They see him. What do they do? Nothing. They keep on with their lives. Whether it's fishing or mending nuts. It is Jesus who calls out, follow me. Oh, that glorious principle, is it not? Of God's call. It never starts in the heart of man. It never starts in the mind of man. It never starts in the will of man. It always starts with God. His sovereign call. 
follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And notice their response immediately. Immediately, they leave. Immediately, they set aside that which is less important. Oh, it's not that their fishing business wasn't important. It's not that their responsibilities, particularly to James and John, to their father, were not important. But they were less important than the call of Jesus. These men respond because they understand the authority of the one who is calling them. And they understand that because of God's work in their heart and in their life. See, when you understand that which God does and you understand the authority of Jesus, as incomplete as their understanding was, when you get but a taste, when you get but a sampling, of who Christ is, then there can be nothing but an immediate response. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. For these men, the Lord is calling them to follow Him. For others... His call is, follow me, but stay where you're at. I need you in your place. Because all authority, he will say at the end of Matthew, has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. Go where? Wherever you are. Wherever you are. I will make you fishers of men. This is the great call that God, that Jesus places not upon only the hearts of these four fishermen, but on the hearts of each and every believer. All authority. Remember what I told you this passage is about? It's about authority. It's about Jesus coming and saying, follow me. And they immediately go. You're looking for a point of application in our own lives from this passage. Here's one. We have to immediately go. We have to immediately become those missionaries that we are called to be. Not just supporting missionaries. Not just giving money out there. Not just praying for people out there. But that we disciple. That we bring the good news. That we go to our community. That we go to our family. That we go to our workplace. That we go with the message of Christ. Now what does that look like? Come back tonight. Come back tonight. And you'll find out one of the means that Christ gives to us as his people to bring the gospel to others. But we have another first, and that's a first healing. That's a first healing. It's important that we pay attention because Mark 
calls our attention to it. They, that is Jesus and now his four fishermen disciples, came into Capernaum. Capernaum is going to become the base of Jesus' ministry. We refer to Capernaum more often than we do Nazareth in Scripture because it seems to be more of a location that Jesus is drawn to. Even though we read that Jesus uh, went back to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph and that he is certainly considered a Nazarene, there is some indications even from the other Gospels that perhaps the family at one point or another, perhaps after Joseph's death, moved to Capernaum. Maybe there was extended family there. And that makes some sense, doesn't it? Because James and John are what? They're cousins of Jesus through their mother. So perhaps the family moved to Capernaum because Mary as a widow with a young family is going to need some support. And so she moves to Capernaum where there are other family members. It becomes then that home base. It's located on the northwest shore of, Gal of the Sea of Galilee. There is a tax office there, and that's not an inconsequential thing. If there is a tax office in the city, it means it's a pretty thriving commercial place. There is a lot of trade going on, and Rome wants to make sure it gets in on the taxes that it's going to acquire from that. Josephus tells us that at one time, sometime during this period of Jesus' ministry, there were at least 330 fishing boats, commercial enterprises, that have their base in Capernaum. So there's a lot of fish being brought in and exchanged and sold and marketing going on. Rome is going to delve into the taxes that all of this involves. So it's quite natural, as we just learned, that there were four fishermen there. But don't think they're the only four guys or the only two businesses that are in operation. There is a lot happening and a lot taking place. There is a Roman centurion located in Capernaum, which probably tells us that there is, this is a military outpost as well. Perhaps to guard the whole taxes, perhaps to keep control of some rowdy Jews who might uh, kind of think of the fact that this might become a good base for an insurrection. After all, one of Jesus' disciples is from Galilee as well, uh, the Zealot. They're all from Galilee, but the Zealot is from there as well, which seems to be kind of a base of operation. So the Romans probably placed some soldiers there in order to keep control upon this place. But there is also a synagogue there. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue. The synagogue is perhaps one of the most important places in the Jewish life, not only at the time of Jesus, but now. Because it was only at the temple that sacrifices could be made. But you couldn't make that weekly trek down to Jerusalem to offer your sacrifices. Therefore, God in his wisdom had commanded that only three times a year was a Jewish man to appear before him at the temple in Jerusalem. 
the rest of the time, worship took place in the synagogue. So don't think at synagogues they're doing sacrifices. That's only at the temple. But what are they doing at the synagogue? They're praying, they're singing, they're reading God's Word, and there is a time for a sermon, a time for teaching, a time for explanation. This is where Jesus is. It's his customary practice. This is what Jesus does. He goes to the synagogue. The time, Mark tells us when this was. It was on a Sabbath. So the Jews have gathered on their Sabbath, the seventh day, a Saturday, just as they do today. That's why yesterday's shooting that occurred in Pittsburgh, there were so many there. What was everybody doing at church on a Saturday? Were they having some sort of potluck or something? Was it a breakfast? No, Jews still worship on Saturday. They were there for worship yesterday, just as they were here in Capernaum on the day that Jesus is there. They have sung, they have prayed, the text has been read, and Jesus is teaching. And we don't know how far along he was in the teaching and explanation of the passage, we are not told, except it must have been fairly significantly long, because note what happens. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribe. So they had had a pretty good taste of what Jesus was doing. They had had a pretty good taste of Jesus' sermon. Enough so that they could sit back and say, this is not what we're used to. Now what were they used to? I had mentioned this earlier. What are they used to? What they're used to is this. Somebody gets up and reads a text. From the Old Testament, because that's all they have. So an Old Testament text has been read. The scroll is rolled up, put in its place, and then someone is invited forward to explain the text. The explanation of the text generally consisted of this. We are told by Rabbi so-and-so that this text means this. And we are told by Rabbi so-and-so that this text means this. Rabbi so-and-so commented on this text by saying, Rabbi so-and-so also said this about the text. Another rabbi has written this. All it was, was quotations of rabbis. That's all it was. Now, depending on which rabbis you were aligned to, those were the rabbis you chose to explain the text. If you had another rabbi that you were dedicated to, then you read him and all the men who followed after him. And you see, they have about 400 years of resources to go by. So you can about imagine how many quotations are generally included here. There is no, you see, thus saith the Lord. But you see, when Jesus taught, 
There are no rabbis quoted. This is the word of the Lord. It is just him telling them what the word means. You see, he doesn't need a rabbi to interpret because he is the word. He is the living word. He wrote the word. He knows what the word means. And you see, that's what they're sensing. They're sensing there's something different. We're catching something here. There is a certain authority that comes when you, <coughs> when you proclaim the word of the Lord that doesn't come when you simply read off quote after quote after quote after quote after quote. It is in this time. Come out, imagine. Okay? They're whispering. This is quite authoritarian. This is quite something. I haven't heard one rabbi quoted. Suddenly in the midst of this, verse 23, and immediately there was a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out. Now there's a couple of things I want to point out. One, this man, quote unquote, was in church. Lest us think That there are never unconverted people in church. This guy probably showed up every Sabbath day. Now, did he do this every Sabbath day? No. Did every Sabbath day he stand up and interrupt the guy? No. But this man, who is possessed with an evil spirit, in the presence of Christ cannot cover up who he is. For you see, Jesus knows he's there. Jesus knew he was going to be there. Jesus went to Capernaum and he went to the synagogue on this particular Sabbath in the timetable of providence to encounter this man. Jesus knew he was going to stand up and interrupt the sermon. This demonic force who had been present in their sanctuary, who knows, weeks, months, years? Gives us pause to stop and think, doesn't it? Gives us a reminder of the fact that presence amongst God's worshiping people are not all saints. And immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out. I want you to note that this man, the unclean spirit, the evil spirit, the demon, knows exactly who Jesus is. Notice what he cries out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? 
He knows where Jesus is from. He knows Jesus' name. Now, you could say, well, he learned that from information. That perhaps is true. But notice, what have you to do with us? Does the us refer to the people there in Capernaum? Perhaps. Perhaps the man is saying, what have you do to do with us? Indicating the rest of the synagogue that is gathered there upon that day. The rest of the Jewish followers that are there. Oh, but I think it becomes clear to us the fact that that's really not who's behind the us. It's referring to the fact that what have you to do with us as demons? What are you going to do? Some commentators believe this is kind of a throw-out challenge to Jesus. What are you going to do about us? I think it falls a little bit more into fear. What are you going to do to us? We know who you are. You are. Note what the demon says. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Now this is not something that the community has talked about. The Holy One of God? You are the sinless, righteous one. You are the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the King. You're the Anointed One. The Holy One of Israel. See, that was a title that was often used for the high priest. The one who was anointed to be the mediator. I know who you are. You are the anointed Messiah of God. You are the one who has come to redeem his people. You are the Holy One. You are the perfect sacrifice. What are you going to do to us? In the presence of the authority of Christ, you see, the demons shudder. A year earlier, in that desert, Christ had silenced Satan. Get away. But now he sends his forces. Such teaching, such power. And it's at that moment that Satan challenges. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with us? We recognize your power. We recognize your authority. Silence! Come out of him. I, I often sometimes chuckle when I read about what goes on in present day exorcisms and all the little rituals that got to be attached to it and how many times you have to pray and how many times you have to say Jesus name and people say oh this is a strong one you see because we have to say Jesus name over and over again really be silent come out of him oh, the authority and power of Jesus 
There it is. Verse 26, and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Notice that this authority is confessed now, not only by the demon in terms of what he says. Notice that the authority of Jesus is fully on display. They can see it. Jews require signs. How do you show forth the sign of your authority? Be silent, come out of him. And the demon leaves. And the man is left in his right mind. They saw it with their own eyes. When Jesus will say about these people of Capernaum, if the signs and wonders had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have believed. But you, even though you have seen with your eyes, you have heard with your ears, still do not believe. But note, they confess his authority. But notice how verse 27 says, and they were all amazed. See, they don't believe, but they're amazed. See, there's a difference between being amazed and believing. Believing would be, let us go and be his disciples. They would fall at his feet and worship him. Instead, what they are is, they're, the, 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 another term that is used here by different, is thunderstruck. They're in awe. They're like, wow, that was pretty amazing. That was quite something. But it doesn't change life. Life the next day will be the same as it was upon this Sabbath day. Oh, they'll talk about it. They'll speak about it. But there is no life-changing difference. They even note the authority. A new teaching with authority. They even acknowledge what he did. They even acknowledge that it wasn't a trick. They even acknowledge that the demons obey him. But still, they do not believe. This is the reaction that is recorded. Amazement. And the news spreads. Everybody's talking. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we were in the synagogue in Capernaum. Guess what happened? This new guy, Jesus, came in and this guy interrupted and then Jesus said, be silent, and the demon left. Oh, man, you, before that, you should have heard him teaching. Man, that was quite something. But that's it. That's it. There is no belief. There is no turning. There is no repentance. The kingdom of heaven has come. The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe in the gospel. And God's people say, Father, we do thank you for your word and for its reminder to us this morning.
of this great and glorious power and authority. But Father, we stand this morning not amazed. Not amazed. Not bewildered. Not struck with awe. We stand this morning as those who believe. As those who confess. We are sinners saved only by the blood of Jesus Christ. We stand and say there is the Holy One of Israel. Jesus Christ who gave his life as a ransom for me. We stand this morning and say, with all of your saints in glory, crown him, crown him, crown him. For he has all authority and all power. What a blessing grace is. What a blessing it is to have been called by your word to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, God's people say, amen.